Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Guns are the leading cause of death for children in the United States. It's one of the reasons why emergency room physicians say gun violence needs to be addressed as a public health issue. Regardless of whether you're a gun owner or not a gun owner, a Republican, an independent, or a Democrat, no one wants their loved one to be shot. When I frame it in that way, we can make a lot more progress. Douglas wrote essays about photography. He thought photography was so important that photography was going to be able to show white Americans that the humanity of black people was the same as their humanity. So as I took more and more photos of Providence, what I really got interested in is sharing Providence's beauty with the world. If I see something, I know other people are in downtown Providence seeing it too, and we can share that moment together. All I want to do is take those photographs. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. Tonight we begin with some startling statistics. Every day, more than 100 people die from gun violence in the United States, and another 200 are injured. Emergency physicians know this issue well. They're the ones who treat the patients who survive and comfort the loved ones of those who do not. Two of those doctors here in New England believe that addressing this as a public health issue can help reduce the violence. But some say that physicians need to stay in their lane when it comes to guns. As an ER doc, I take care of lots of things that I'm able to change or prevent. And it seems crazy to me that we should just accept gun violence and not try to change or prevent it the same way that I change or prevent any other health problem. That determination to deal with gun violence in a different way began for Dr. Megan Ranney early in her career in Rhode Island. When a young man arrived in the ER near death. It was the first time I'd ever seen someone who had shot themselves and made it to the ER. I take care of lots of people who unfortunately want to hurt themselves and I'm almost always able to save them. I couldn't save this kid. Suicide, it's the number one cause of firearm-related deaths in the United States. While Rani has treated countless patients with gunshot wounds, she often thinks back to that patient who didn't make it. It's also guided her work at Brown University. She's the academic dean for the School of Public Health. So it turned out that this young man had had something upsetting happen earlier in the day and knew where his parents' firearm was stored and how to access it. And I couldn't stop thinking about if he hadn't been able to get access to the gun in that moment of desperation, would he still be alive? Dr. Chris Barsotti has seen similar incidents in the emergency room. He's had to conduct threat assessments of patients who were talking or acting dangerously and legally had access to guns. I was at that time working at several ERs in upstate New York, Vermont, and Western Massachusetts. And many places where I worked didn't have psychiatry. And so the emergency physicians were the ones that were doing all the evaluation of what is the risk of this person with respect to their access to a firearm. And we've had no training in that. So in 2017, Barsadi decided to take action himself. He founded the nonprofit Affirm. He and Rani, along with other physicians, believe that gun violence needs to be addressed 
as a public health issue. Barsadi cites a case of how he'd handle a violent patient with dementia who's brought to the ER. If the person's brought to me for agitation with violent behavior, I will ask that family. So now that this person has progressed to this level, right, and he's throwing pots and pans at his wife, what are your plans for his firearms? And this is an easy discussion. And like, oh, that's a really good thought. Let's, let's think about that. And so they make a plan for addressing those firearms and firearm access in the home. And then the bad outcome is averted and you'll never hear about it. There's nothing in your training that would have required you to even ask that question, right? You took it upon yourself based on what you had observed in prior years in the emergency room. Yeah, it's based on the experience and also as a firearm owner, you know, as, as a firearm owner, as a trainer, um, I mean, responsibility and uh, safety are paramount. Barsadi and Rani say it's about picking up on the warning signs. Research shows nearly half of all people who take their own lives visit their primary care provider within the preceding month. Asking about firearm access for people at risk of suicide wasn't something I was taught in medical school or in residency. It really wasn't until I started to do this work that I realized how common firearm suicide is and how important it is to talk about access to a gun when you're trying to protect someone from hurting themselves. What's the response you get from patients? It's fine. I mean, I ask it as part of a larger group of questions. It's not like I'm quizzing someone about whether they're a gun owner or not. As a gun owner and physician, Barsadi is passionate about talking with stakeholder groups nationwide about developing firearm safety education with a focus on community health. How have you been received by other friends of yours, other people in the firearm community with the approach you're taking to gun violence? I've had no problems whatsoever in working with individuals in the firearm industry, the firearm community, my own range, my own family on this topic, or even speaking about firearm access amongst my patients at risk. Both Barsadi and Rani stress their work isn't about gun rights or gun control, but this public health approach hasn't sat well with the National Rifle Association. In 2018, the NRA tweeted, someone should tell self-important anti-gun doctors to stay in their lane. We haven't engaged the industry in talking about firearms. So we do in some ways talk to ourselves, but the language was clearly unfriendly. And a few hours after that Twitter feed went out, there was a mass shooting in California. We are following new details on a mass shooting in Southern California where a gunman killed at least 12 people. Even though mass shootings make up less than 1% of firearm-related deaths nationwide, they tend to generate the most fear. It's an issue that's personal for Rani. In September, she shared a story on social media about why her teenage daughter always wears sneakers. She was at a local football game and there was a fight that broke out. And I talked to her about it. And kind of, what happened? What did you do? And she said to me, well, I got as far away from it as I could. I didn't want to be near it. But also, Mom, I, that's why I wear sneakers everywhere, because that way I could run if someone pulled out a gun. And I kind of took a breath and said, really? And she goes, yeah, all my friends do. Um, you know, that's one kid. That's an aunt story. But it uh, really reminded me in a very personal way of the degree to which our kids are growing up, knowing that this is part of their reality.
a changing reality for young people. In 2020, guns were the leading cause of death for children in the United States. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 45,000 people died in 2020 from gun-related injuries in the United States, including about 4,300 children. There are 81 million gun owners in this country, at least. And they own a half billion guns between them. And so what that means, just simplistically, is that all these injuries and, and, and harms are being perpetrated by a really, really small percentage of people who own firearms, like, le like less than 0.2%. I think that the most important thing is to recognize that we don't have the answers and for us to be, be open and humble about that and then try to work with the people who might have ideas so that we can together collaborate on those solutions. Ranny says public health approaches have helped solve problem after problem, including deaths from car crashes and smoking. She says there are practical things that can also be done to reduce deaths from firearms. So there's actually been studies showing that when you put streetlights in a neighborhood, the number of shootings goes down. If you put a garden in a vacant lot, you know, you take a dilapidated building or a lot that's filled with broken glass and garbage and you turn it into a garden, that reduces the number of shootings and violent incidents around that neighborhood. Are you feeling more hopeful now than you were when you began this work? There are some things that make me scared and worried, but what gives me hope is the fact that day after day we continue to work with folks who may not have ever worked together before to help change these patterns. It's about creating coalitions across our society, regardless of whether we vote red or blue. Um, and I see those growing. And that's actually what gives me hope. Because I know our kids deserve a different tomorrow from the one that they're living in right now. Now another look at a story that contributing reporter Bill Bartholomew brought us last March about one man and a group of area teens who are also fighting gun violence with an unlikely weapon. I've known people that have died from cancer. I've known people that have died from you know, auto accidents, taking their lives in other ways, complications from diabetes. But I don't know five people that have died from any of those things. But Providence artist and educator Scott Lapham does know five people who died from one singular cause, gun violence. One of his first experiences with gun tragedy was losing one of his students. He was standing in line at a food truck to get a sandwich and he got shot. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was really, really intense, really devastating. Soon after, he lost three more students and realized that this was a much bigger problem. There was, there was Eric, Dougie, and then Vinny. And, um, and over the years, you know, I really started to think about it more, like what was, what was happening, how crazy it was. Crazy and close to home, Lapham says the losses brought back a memory he had long tried to suppress, his stepbrother taking his own life. That was a family tragedy, and I didn't really think about it in terms of... Uh, gun violence. So I really started to look at gun violence as something that was kind of across the board. And it wasn't, you know, I mean, people are unhappy across the world. People have conflict across the world, but not every 
culture has so many guns to make our human behaviors deadly and fatal. And that's what we have. Lapham decided to blend his experiences with gun violence, advocacy, art, and education into one project with a mission to get people talking about the problem. Launching One Gun Gone in 2015, he and his students take molds of guns, develop a statement of what they want to say, and convert the deadly weapons into art and hopefully start a dialogue. I might just be the next man. Students like Jeremy Perez have experienced this sort of tragedy around them and say they have found a safe haven through the program. Gun violence has affected um, my community a lot. A lot of people have been shot, killed. It's, it's stuff that you see at an early age, and it, it affects how you could, uh, you know, as a kid growing up, being able to go outside and have fun. It's very hard when you hear gunshots and you have to run back home. One Gun Gone has given students like Perez a place to channel their energy. And when pieces are sold, the work has resulted in several stunning pieces of art displayed in various spaces, including RISD. The ideas and materials used are seemingly endless. We wanted to do it in glass. Um, we didn't realize how ambitious that was going to be, but the reason we wanted to use glass was because it's transparent. That made us think of the, uh, uh, the fleetingness of life. If this drops, there's a potential for it to shatter. And that is talking about a gun in a way that we don't normally think of it, which is guns are powerful. Um, you know, they're, they're all about power. Where did it go from there? We thought that the project would end, but then we started thinking, why should it end? It's like we have a mold. What else could we put in it? One of the program's most powerful designs is the pencil gun. What I was saying was something along the lines of the pen is mightier than the sword. That's what I thought the message was. But everybody else who looks at it, especially young people, are just like school shootings. And one young man came in, and we weren't expecting this. He looked at it, and he said, this doesn't have an eraser. That means you can't take it back. One student and artist says that gun violence has gotten so bad that programs like One Gun Gone are needed now more than ever. It's definitely gotten worse. There's a whole bunch of stuff that kind of influence it, you know, there's a whole bunch of, when it, what, no matter what it is, whether it's the music people listen to, whether it's the people they surround themselves with, but I can definitely say that it's growing day by day. Up next, he was a fugitive aided by friends in Rhode Island in a daring and dangerous escape. And he went from being on the run to becoming one of the most influential Americans of the 19th century. Tonight, how the people of our community played a pivotal role in the life of an abolition activist as he took his first steps to freedom. Throughout his whole life, from, from the time that he uh, really gains freedom, he works constantly for freedom, and for freedom for his brothers and sisters, meaning the African-American community. He spoke out for women. At one point in time, he's in England, and how important it is for the English to take their foot off the neck of the Irish. So he was somebody who worked all the time for equality. That early civil rights activist was born a Southern slave. Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey later changed his name to Frederick Douglass to elude capture. 
He escaped bondage, arriving in Newport in 1838. Historian Lee Blake explains why he couldn't stay there. Because Newport, Rhode Island, is a slave state. And one thing that people really forget is how involved Rhode Island was in the slave trade. Many of the slave ships that came to the United States came into Rhode Island. But Douglas and his new wife, Anna Murray Douglas, do find safe harbor, however briefly, in Newport with the free black family of Isaac Rice. The Rice homestead still stands on the corner of Thomas and William Streets and was a station on the Underground Railroad. The Douglases were then whisked by stagecoach here to New Bedford. From that corner down about four blocks is all Abolition Row. Blake, who is president of the New Bedford Historical Society, says it is to this Whaling City neighborhood, now the historic district Abolition Row, that Douglas is sent. He has his first taste of life as a free man in the home of Nathan and Polly Johnson. What role did this very house that we're sitting in have in shaping Frederick Douglass's life? Nathan and Polly Johnson, who were African-American entrepreneurs, were part of the Underground Railroad. So this is an Underground Railroad site, and when Anna and Frederick come here, they've just been married just three or four days, but Frederick is 20 years old, so we're so used to seeing Frederick Douglass as an elder statesman, we forget that he had a foundation story, and this house is part of the foundation story. The Johnson's house sits side by side with those of Quaker families, whose meeting house is also on the street. Anti-slavery Quakers were active in the city's whaling trade and employed many African Americans. New Bedford is a really unique place at that time, New Bedford is a, a bustling, whaling port, but it's also a place with a large, free black population. Massachusetts ends slavery in 1783, so people here are free and are able to go about their business as um, citizens. Douglas finds work on the docks in New Bedford and marvels at the opportunity in the seaport town. He's able to vote here. Voting in New Bedford was not segregated. He paid his poll tax, $1.50, and in the 1840s, he's voting. Uh, New Bedford African Americans were running people for elections for different posts and positions. So the, New Bedford teaches him the possibility and the hope of what freedom might really look like if people were equal. Douglas is also able to attend church and act as a lay minister, where he learns he needs to speak up. He talks about getting the sacrament in one of the churches, where he's sitting in the back pew, he gets the sacraments last, and he just can't believe it. And he writes about that, and he writes about how Christians were hypocritical. So as good as it was here, yeah, it wasn't yeah. perfect. Right. He's also able to write and put little editorials in the paper. So he, he develops a voice here, which he wouldn't have developed anywhere else. And that voice brings an invitation to speak in Nantucket, a transformational moment when the audience meets the eloquent, literate, self-educated Douglas. He's very hesitant, but he speaks and talks about his life as an enslaved person. But at that time, many of the abolitionists had never really met a slave. So Douglas becomes really important because he can communicate that message 
of what it was like to be enslaved. He would talk about his relationship with his mother, who he only saw a couple of times his whole life, and uh, the beatings that he had. Blake says Douglas not only gave a powerful first-person voice to the evils of slavery, he gave a face, an imposing, intellectually gifted leader. Douglas had a whole rationale for that. Douglas wrote essays about photography. He thought photography was so important that photography was going to be able to show white Americans that the humanity of black people was the same as their humanity. But he also was looking at the idea that at the time, white people were making sure that there were stereotypes of black people, that uh, they would do pictures that were demeaning, that depicted them as less intelligent. So he really was pushing the whole idea that that wasn't true. Blake says Douglas and his family lived in New Bedford for about five years. He would return many times to visit. He also eventually lectured at the Newport Opera House on Turo Square and maintained his friendship with the Rice family. Recently, Rice descendants who still own the home found a letter from Douglas in a bundle of family papers. It was written in 1860 on the eve of the Civil War. The letter begins, These are stormy days. In a surprise turn of fate, Blake found that she too has a connection to Frederick Douglass. These are my abolitionist ancestors, William and Amelia Piper. So here I am, I'm an educator. I'm researching, and what happens? I come across my own family's names in papers, in letters that Frederick Douglass wrote. Blake's great-great-great-grandparents were also conductors on the Underground Railroad along Abolition Row. We're proud of that. And we're proud of a number of the abolitionists who worked very hard to end the whole uh, oppressive system of enslavement. Right across the street from the Johnson home, construction is now underway on Abolition Row Park, and at its heart will be a statue of Frederick Douglass. The statue depicts Douglass in his waterfront working clothes and will bear his quote, truth, justice, liberty, and humanity will ultimately prevail. The same words inscribed on the Senate chamber walls of the Massachusetts State House. What do you want people to when they go to the new Abolition Row Park? I want them to see how civically engaged people were and use that as an example for them to move forward and be engaged. Be engaged in saving our democracy because that's what those people were doing and we're still fighting for our democracy. Finally tonight, we hear from Rhode Island photographer Mike Cohey as he gives us his take on why Providence is such a special place, one beautiful frame at a time. A big motivator for me is just getting Providence out there to the world. Whether it's in a photograph or one of my time lapses, people should want to come and visit here and I do everything I can to encourage it. My name is Mike Cohey, and this is my take on capturing Providence's beauty. I'm originally from the West Coast, grew up a little bit outside of Portland, Oregon, and in 2006, I loaded up my Subaru and rolled into Rhode Island. 
When I first came to Providence, my first view of it was coming up uh, Interstate 95 North and just the skyline revealed itself to me and ever since that day I've just had a complete fascination with it. So as I took more and more photos of Providence, what I really got interested in is sharing Providence's beauty with the world. Off of that spurred a whole bunch of opportunities to share Providence in one way, shape, or another and really try to help put Providence on the map. A lot of elements can make up a good photograph, but the two that I really stick with is the city of Providence and a really unique event, whether that be a sunset or a thunderstorm or really any kind of weather or clouds that come in. I feel it's really important that we can share what we see. And if I see something, I know other people are in downtown Providence seeing it too, and we can share that moment together. So one of my favorite subjects to photograph in all of Providence is the Independent Man. I've photographed him in so many different ways, from being covered in snow, in his loincloth, to standing there bravely as a thunderstorm passes right behind him and lightning bolts are dropping everywhere. He's just the perfect subject for any situation. You can line him right up perfectly with the sun and have him silhouetted. I think I was always meant to be a photographer. Perfectly suits my lifestyle and what brings me pleasure and really what drives me. The fact that there are photos out there that I have in my mind that I haven't taken yet just keeps me up at night. All I wanna do is take those photographs. But I know once I take those photographs, there'll be new photographs to replace them. That really is what keeps me going. Providence is beautiful. Providence has been photographed very well for a really long time. And really, I'm just the next person in line to document its beauty. Until somebody comes and replaces me. My name is Mike Cohey, and that was my take on capturing Providence's beauty. And that's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm Michelle San Miguel. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you. Good night.